0: You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey, world!
1: We're kids!
0: Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise.
1: Yeah, KISS sucks! KISS employs the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities.
0: Speaking of which, KISS is going to have its own comic book soon. Take KISS with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first, now. Oh my God, no time to turn.
1: This is No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd podcast. Nerds. Mm-hmm. And we are now uh, rolling through the album Destroyer and All Things Destroyer, nerding out on Destroyer. And we uh, had part one on the last episode, and hopefully you've caught that. If you haven't, stop what you're doing right now, go back and listen to it. And uh, we're going to jump in here now with both feet and running hard on part two. You know, it was more of a a feel that they were. Achieving. Yeah, and they're
0: probably putting layers and things like that too, and uh, with like different guitar tones. And I'm sure Ace wasn't I'm around for all those either. I'm
1: wondering if Ace even plays lead on Detroit Rock City. I'm wondering you know, if Dick I'm, Wagner did that.
0: I'm thinking of guitar tones. Like quickly, Ace in my may have
1: cut a version.
0: But, have kept, but maybe kept a Dick Wagner version. He might have kept a Dick Wagner version. I haven't read anything to confirm or deny that. I've but never that's heard interesting. anything. But
1: I'm just going by my, just kind of my, it doesn't feel like an A solo to me. Not, no. not because of the way it was written, but just the way it's performed. The tone
0: and everything,
2: it's too. Well, so those- I'm thinking, I'm going on Cap's mind frame and kind of backing you up. So I'm thinking about tone. I'm thinking specifically on Sweet Pain, since we know everyone's confirmed Sweet Pain for a fact. I'm really thinking about like, the way the guitar kind of feedbacks and echoes because i'm sure they did it all in that same session he had to i'm yeah, sure well, Di- that i'm sure dick didn't come back multiple days no, he did it all in that one I'm afternoon so came. it's going to be a very similar guitar tone on anything else he does so I, a good accent point to think on is that ring out note when people are going sweep hey yeah hey, 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 hey. That does sound very similar to the God of Thunder uh, lead solo notes. If you think about that roomy and airiness, it does share very similar dynamics. And another spot that it does is King of the Nighttime World. And I would wonder if because... KISS weren't the writers of that if Bob had him come in to help get some of those segments down simply because, well, they didn't write it anyway. Let's just make it sound right
1: it's possible. That's why. I'm, that's what the yeah, big question mark very is, is: exactly what did Dick Wagner do, yeah. and how much time did he spend on it? And it just seems like you know, given the time and the and the, and the detail that they put into all this, and he's coming in and just kind of laying it on top like real quick. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but you know, because
2: because you do hear that big room tone. I'm thinking of the uh, the harmonizing solo
1: bits in King of the Nighttime World: the boom,
2: boom, 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 da 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 da.
1: Where where is he on this album for sure and you know and like i said is there places where maybe he just uh, mimicked something ace might have done and, and just, just did, did it, did it better. a little better mm-hmm. <laughs> just like let's just because as much as we love
2: ace unfortunately even by his own account this is around the time where he started getting a little bit more freedom and money so the drugs and alcohol were a little bit
0: more present he was so. playing the uh, rock star part like Super hardcore in public. Th- well, this you time know,
1: the, the, the debate. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. So shout it out loud. Uh, yeah. is written on piano. That's a collaboration with Gene Paul and, and Bob. Bob Ezrin. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love
0: those pian- low piano notes. They play along notes with the bass. Too.
1: the bass. Yeah, that's one of the notes I've got. hmm Um, and it's their, You know, another. probably an effort to uh, supplant rock and roll all night with another. Right, shout it out loud! Another well, you know, anthem. Another you know. anthem. It, Yeah, I love this song. I just you know, it's it's very poppy, but it's uh, I like the lyric because you know it's kind of how you feel. You see, I think this is a thing that's lost. It's a generational thing where you know the parental approval of rock and roll was not very prevalent in the seventies. It was very. It was very, you know, e- you know, it was still a very much a. Uh, it, it, I'd w- agree with you that. Know, where if it was, v- you know, just viciously hated in the fifties, by the seventies, it was just, uh, you know, yeah. And, and there's it's that like, great line. Don't let them tell you that there's too much noise. They're too old to, to really, really understand, understand. You know, it's such but a great you don't, line. They don't even say your parents. They just say don't they. let them. Then it's like who? Well, oh, your parents, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just. You know, I can remember—I don't know how old I was, but my brother's four years older than I am, and he went to a party. And I'm like, "Where are you going?" He's like, "I'm going to a party. Whose birthday is it?" Because <laughs> you know, I was like, "You had a party? That's what a party was. <laughs> no, man, you're stupid. It's a party, just a party. <laughs> <laughs> you mean they just have parties for no reason? You know." Well, you know, no, this I stuff mean, didn't click in my brain when I was like, you know, seven or whatever. I mean, you're right,
2: it is a total generational thing because you got a song like this for the 70s and then 80s, Fight for Your Right to Party. It's like yeah. that song is totally lost yeah. on a
1: generation yeah. you now. You never get anyone to write anything like that today because it wouldn't no. make any sense. No, because young
0: kids would call it dad rock these days. No, we're not getting you know, into all that. No, it is, it is, <laughs> <No>. but, <laughs> but one of the few... KISS tracks where it's a duet with Paul and Gene
1: yeah I like that there's that kind of mm-hmm. it's not really a call and response it's just a shared lead shared lead yeah. yeah and I remember the first
2: time hearing this with really good headphones or really good speakers and hearing that piano bit and mm. it catching me off guard because yeah. of course when you're a kid you don't either fully pay attention or you have the shitty boom box you have to listen to yeah. on everything <laughs> but it's like the, the day I had like the decent earbuds or like you know the nicer room stereo and I finally heard that do yeah don't, don't, bomb, 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 bomb. Bom, bom, bom. It gives it all
1: the atmosphere that, it's so that cool. opens it up in a, in a much, you know, kind of a larger kind of scope to what, and that's what he's trying to do with everything here, obviously. Exactly. And that's and, why it's and, a great and, album.
2: And a small thing that I think people also take for granted that I took for granted until I heard that really crappy, like, 2014 re record they did just to get the rights back to use for Guitar Hero and sync rights and everything. Mm. They re recorded that one. Mm. But something that people take for granted is when you pay attention to the chorus, they are genuinely shouting it out loud. They're not going, shout it, shout it, shout it out loud. They're going, shout it. They are genuinely passionate about yelling, shout it out loud. And you can feel that through the chorus. And you took it for granted because on the re-record, they were trying to hit the note. So they weren't well, really pushing a it anymore both
1: on the on the on the original, but um, well, I see what you're saying. But it genuinely sounds like four, five, six
2: guys just yelling,
1: shout it, shout it, shout it out loud. Everybody
0: gets their little moment in between the the chorus bits on the last one when yeah, it's like yeah. the, the drum, when it's just the it,
2: drum and the it vocals. Just, it genuinely just sounds like a whole bunch of people yelling and having a good time. Well, it does.
1: It has a, a kind of a um, you know coming into the towards the end of the song. It 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 feels very I'm trying to think of the right word like
0: the R&B gospel thing that we keep yeah, alluding it's, to it's, with him
1: it's, it's it is a little
2: R&B man now that I'm kind of dissecting it into that because Paul especially the we fast forwarding the Alive 2 version you know Paul's really going to come out about it, you know. Oh, it's, got, yeah. it's
1: got the big kind of celebratory kind of. Yeah, it's very large. It is. Know. It's it's um, so awesome. It is, and then and then it stops almost abruptly. Yeah, and then, whoop, and, then <laughs> and then goes right into Beth. Mm-hmm. And now Beth, you know, no one had any faith in this song. uh I think the st- other than Bob Ezrin. Yeah. It's like he he, was very insistent about having this included, but but I
2: also feel like I feel like Bob had so much faith in it because it matched up with what he was already writing. Because, from all accounts, even Peter's own book, Bob basically whipped the song into shape.
1: Oh, of course, it came from that original song called Beck, Beck, and it was written by Stan Penridge. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Peter gets a Code Songwriting right yeah. credit, regardless. Right. And, and, but know, I think he really took a liking to it. Though. But the song was written as a joke. Yeah, yeah. The joke was.
0: Oh, uh, was old ladies calling yeah, you. He's like, or you got to yeah, go home. You got to
1: go home. And there, it was the whole thing was a joke. It was mocking, and old they Becky. turned it into. He's like, you know, it's it, you know, as as Nigel Tufnell so famously said, "It's a fine line between stupid and clever." Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know. So, he takes this thing. Bob Ezrin takes this thing, and turns it into something completely different. Because much it to the
0: dismay of Paul and Gene, too, they yeah. did not want it on the album at all. Well,
1: you know, and the irony is, of course, it's going to become the hit off this record. But uh, it's it's, uh, it, it's when they recorded it, uh, along with the symphonic stuff with. Um, Credit expectations. Peter sang it live in the studio. They didn't use that that take. Yeah. He was doing a goat, what they call, a, I guess, a ghost vocal or a yeah. scratch vocal. Scratch, yeah. Scratch, yeah. But by all accounts, his vocal take on that was really fucking good. And everyone was like, whoa never knew you had an idiot and, and like even the 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 orchestra were like you know he said they, they they got up and they applauded and all this stuff yeah and, you know that probably of course made peter's ego swell about oh yeah five times so hilarious. you read
0: his book his account all of it it's like the most proud moment of his well, life it, it at that be. point it Absolutely. should be it's a,
1: it's a, it's a, you know even though you know technically i don't think he had very so much, much of to it was spoon fed to him but hey you know what it's still a great song. It is, and, and the vocal take they do have on it is good. And
2: now, do we believe that it took anywhere between thirty to fifty takes to get it?
1: I don't know. Who knows?
2: Both all three of us have been I've in the heard, vocal booth. I, I, I have not. We know how quickly
1: those takes add up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it probably took as many as that. I don't know. So, it does again what you get though. It, it's it's if he has to put work into it, you know what? That's what you're supposed to do. Does it take 30 or 40 takes sometimes to get a guitar part right maybe, you know? No one wants to own up on their own shit, you know? It's like how many takes did it take you to do any one Difficult thing. I'm not telling you. you know, <laughs> well, I'm not saying this. That was
2: my way of owning up to the fact of, hey, I'm not shitting on 30 or 40 takes of something. Uh, <laughs> I'm just not going to tell you which ones of mine it was.
1: <laughs> what is? Here's a funny story about this, though. Because of the Joyce Biowitz neil Bogart affair, Neil Bogart leaves his wife. Yeah. And her name is Beth. And he sees dun, dun, this dun. as a very large uh and, and, uh, and in a very very big ha <laughs> joke at him and he's I like didn't I never knew this and 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 he he was not at all pleased by this <laughs> And uh, this will come into play when when this song becomes a single. But we'll get we'll, we'll come back to that here in a minute.
2: Yeah, no, I never knew that story because because again, I guess I just I didn't know as much of like the ins and outs of like the inside of the company. You, well, we
1: can talk about this right now if you want. So we'll, we're let's in do the this, song since it actually connects. Let's yeah. just stay there. So, uh, depending on who, who you know what story, I think is probably there's no one you know aha person. I think it was a couple of people all having the same thing so beth is the flip side the first single off of destroyer is detroit rock city right and uh by rights it makes sense where are you going to try to break this single at detroit yeah what's the biggest radio station in detroit well the biggest radio station in detroit isn't in detroit it's across the river in windsor ontario canada if you've ever been to Detroit, literally, it's a, literally mm-hmm. across the river, just a bridge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just up there recently, when my daughter was like, "Wait, you mean that's Canada, there?" <laughs> you know? Wow, yeah, so that and, would have yeah. had the
2: exact same response. Yeah,
1: that's Canada, and uh, the radio station in Windsor was uh, CLK, or CKLW, and it was a big AM powerhouse station, and it was it was an important station to have because its reach covered Michigan. Upper Ohio, which is Toledo, Cleveland. I think you could get it. The in, Heartland. I think you could get it, like in Erie, Pennsylvania. You know, and of course, uh, the upper part of uh, or the lower part of in Ontario, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so it was an important radio station to, to get to break a to break a single. Their program director was a woman named Rosalie Trumbly. Rosalie Trumbly. Was it was very revolutionary in that you know it was a it was a female program director. She wasn't a DJ. She was the program director. I mean, she chose the music. Um, famously, Bob Seeger wrote a song called "Rosalie." Then Lizzie picked it up and did I, a that's version. That's the first
0: thing that popped in my head, yeah. actually.
1: And it's about her, which she would not. She refused to play it because she felt you know she, nepotism. <laughs> and she allegedly was the one that was like, "Well, I don't think this song is very strong, but this." I like this Beth song. This Beth song could do really well. But uh, generally, I think it's credited for a a DJ in Columbus, Georgia that also did it. And so I think all this was happening more than one place. And also, quick side note. It was being suggested by program directors to, uh, I think the guy's name was, I want to say it's Scott Shannon. I don't have that. If I have that wrong, I'm sure people maul me on it. But he was the... the, uh, I guess he was an A&R guy for Casablanca. He was the guy that was like helping push these singles. Right. And, and little footnote so on that. It was relating that. back to him and he was relating it back to the
2: It can be found on YouTube company. and stuff. If you listen to that single edit of Detroit Rock City no wonder they flipped it over. That is a really bad cut job on that song. So it's like they they did not give this like that single justice. It did not sound good on uh, well, cut down you know, like that. They
1: have to have it into a, a format you know that's going to fit AM again. You got to remember the AM was king even at this point. Yeah. FM was growing, but you know. Top 40 radio was still the domain of AM radio and um, still
0: had to have two and a half minutes to three yeah, or, was that yeah yeah
1: but when
2: you, when you check out that seven is that they're sending out to stations that cut of Detroit Rock City is not well, good. it doesn't do well no. until
1: they flip you know and then it, again they're trying it, when he relays back to Neil Bogart, it's like, hey you know I think the B side might really do well here. Beth. Ah, they're making fun of me here. I don't like that, you know. (laughs) And so there was it met resistance on the label, which is kind of unusual. But eventually, they all saw the potential in it, and obviously, it worked. And now, and and what's interesting even more is again where things start to overlap. By the time Beth as as an A side starts breaking as a single and it reaches, I think number seven, it's in November of seventy six. And by this point, Rock and Roll Over is already out. Mm -hmm.
2: And and the one odd thing for me, too, is, so we already mentioned how starting from even recording, the band didn't even like the song, didn't have faith in it. Bogart saw the song as an internal joke to him. So now you've even got someone high up at the record label that's not even a fan of the song.
1: Not high up. Highest up. (laughs) The The The
2: guy. The man. The man. How did it end up on the B-side of a 7-inch?
1: Um... That uh,
2: seems like something they would have actually just buried it, left it on yeah. the record, and well, been like, we're going to leave who it de- there to who die. Who
1: decides that? Who decides what the singles are going to be? Right.
2: So it's like it seems and like if, if everyone from well. the band to the top of the record label hated this song so much, they wouldn't have even included it on well, it something like, ooh, look at these two songs on the upcoming
1: or the current record. Yeah. That's, I, well, that's I mean, very I mean, odd. A B-side think- is a B. I mean, it's a B-side for a reason. Did you,
0: know, you think that was a Bob call, you know, as far as like, this better be- go on the record or... Maybe. Maybe? Well, I mean, you, he, you know, he, I he wonder pushed. if that's maybe part of the contract thing he has, because that was kind of his baby too.
1: Well, at any rate,
0: arrangement-wise, you know, yeah,
1: at any rate, it made it, and it made it made that album because had that album tanked, and it kind of sort of almost did.
0: And uh, I mean, this is according to Peter's book, but they say that. uh folks came up to him saying that that song saved the record. It did
1: save the record. That's
0: yeah,
2: not, we that's only not have not one untrue. more song left on the record, yeah, which so, actually is, let's go ahead and touch on that. Yeah. So we can talk about reception.
1: Do you love me? Um, this is another, another one. This is another one that is largely, uh, this is, uh, I, I think this is probably 80% Bob Ezrin. And I think it's about 10% Kim Fowley. And then, Maybe 10% Paul Stanley. And I don't know if Stanley would acknowledge this or not, but um, Kim Fowley, I think, wrote most of the lyrics to this. Um,
0: Yeah, I was picturing that in the King of the Nighttime World lyrics and their kind of arrangements and things like that, too.
1: But, I mean, you know, and I think Paul just kind of did a rewrite of... The lyric does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and and, and I think musically, I think this is probably 100 percent all Bob Ezrin. I, I can't say that definitively.
0: But those harmony guitars but and he, things he, like he, that, and he, which he you didn't hear on the first three records, really.
1: Well, yeah, there's just I mean, just the way it, the whole arrangement of the song, ba, ba, ba yeah, all that ba, coming ba, in, yeah. Ba, ba. You never heard that you on kill never kill stuff before. Heard stuff like that, you know. And then never mind the production value, which of course you know he has the tubular bells at the end, yeah, which is great. Inside note: goes. I love that AM
2: blow horn, or air horn uh, megap- megaphone thing. Thank you. Sound they put on Paul's vocals on the uh, uh, the black sunglasses yeah. makes you I look just too. like a queen. I
1: mean, all of it. I love this song. I think I, mean, I love the the studio version. I do. Too. I used to
0: hated the live version when I forgot that first con- uh, concert DVD. I I
1: I've just I've always loved the song. I think it's you know in it and it. And it ends in that same kind of. S- mm-hmm. s- I mean, it, it, it's a. That same kind of vibe that shouted It Out Loud ends. It's really large. It's got the, the chimes and it's, it's. Anthemic. It's anthemic. But it, you know. I need you to. And, 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 but it shows, you know, and this was the thing that Bob was very adamant about. He wanted to show vulnerability lyrically, you know, instead of, you know,. I'm a rock star. your me. You know this is. But do you love me? I have. I'm a rock star. But do you? Do you love me? Mm-hmm. You know that kind of a thing, right? As opposed to you know, do you love me because of who I am, or do you love me because I'm a rock star?
0: And I love that. Where letter. everything
1: else is, I'm a rock star. You love me. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: Do you really love me? But now I, 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 that's it, it's a boulder,
1: and Again, that's that's a point that shows that that's that's obviously a Bob Ezrinism. I don't think Paul would have ever brought that into the brought that to the table at that point. No, because he still puts himself larger than life, and 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 you know. um, But I, you know, it's funny because again, you grow up with it. You don't hear it any different. You don't recognize that sort of stuff until you really kind of start thinking deep into it. But you're not supposed to. It's a pop song. It's supposed to be, you know. It yeah, your layman is.
0: is not gonna pick that apart, you know, upon hearing it.
1: Now, when they started playing this live on the reunion tour, they played this extended coda part. Do y'all, do y'all yeah, know what bo- I'm talking about? Na- 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 <coughs> Bom- apparently, yeah, I don't know right. if this is true. I've read somewhere and I, I can't remember where, and it isn't in any of the information that I cited, you know, any of these books that I've been examining and stuff. But apparently that part was recorded, is what I've heard. I don't know. Yeah. And then just it was deemed too long, and they cut it out.
2: That, if they had recorded that, that would have been interesting to include on that destroyer resurrected. Yeah, that's
1: when I thought and, it. That's when that came out. I thought for sure it was going to be on there because I had heard that somewhere or read it somewhere. It may not have been done, but it seems like that I had heard that, that was recorded, as is meant to be the, you know, kind of
2: the. And speaking of the uh, resurrected thing, it took me until that release. And now I can't unhear it. It's not something they added. It's in the original mix. But I don't think Peter ever did it live. And Eric Singer certainly doesn't do it. There is an extra ghost kick in that beat. We typically hear it as boom, pa, boom, boom, pa, uh-huh. boom, pa, boom, boom, pa. The actual beat, and if you listen to Resurrected, you can hear it a lot clearer. And if you go back to the original press, you can now hear it, it now that it's been brought up. Right. It, the beat is actually boom ba boom boom ba boom boom ba boom boom ba oh, yeah. boom boom. He adds an extra kick beat right, to it, right. and he doesn't use it live. He and singer well, definitely may, didn't that, do it.
1: Well, you think maybe that was maybe that was doctored into in the recording? I'm not sure possibly but either way it's
2: on the original mix but after the resurrected one where they kind of cleaned up the kick and it's a little bit more present all of a sudden I heard that extra kick and I went back to the original to see if like maybe that was an addition for the remaster or whatever no it, that beat is in the original but it's just you don't hear it because you're used to hearing live versions where you hear it super clear boom pop boop, boop pop, boop poop, boop poop, pop. So, yeah, it, that that was my one little odd thing that I heard finally in the mix, is there's an extra little kick in there.
1: <laughs> That's interesting. I never noticed that. i got to go back and listen to that. I do, mm-hmm. too.
0: Normally, I, we can make this a subject later on in the episode about how we feel about the resurrected. Uh, well, let's actually, mixes. let's talk on that real quick,
2: since we're at the tail end right, of yeah. this now.
1: Hi. Thumbs up or down? What do you all think?
2: Honestly, because it has not replaced the original, mm-hmm. thumbs up.
1: Yeah,
0: I just don't like the way the guitar, it's like some of the guitars are kind of... Buried in the uh, or the vocals are way higher in the resurrected mix than some of the guitars are. I just don't like that balance, but that's just my only little like little eh, critique. It seems
1: uh, well, it seems the whole thing seems a little brighter.
0: Yeah, but Mm -hmm.
1: but you know, I don't see a radical difference in between them. The main
2: difference I hear is in the drums. They cleaned up the drums and kind of made it a little tighter.
1: The thing that's interesting about Bob Ezrin and this this came up when they. Did double platinum, which we'll discuss at another time. But you know, they remixed all those songs. They and they've realized that all of that stuff that Bob Ezrin puts into the mix is in the mix. It's like on the master track. You can't get rid of it. Yeah. So there was that was the other thing I was curious about when they did resurrected. It was like, well, what can they really do? They can't take anything out. You know, they can't. You know, they like uh, for instance, I'm referencing, let's say, uh, the Beatles, Let It Be, Naked. Yeah. And where they took all the Phil Spectorisms out. You can't take the Bob out. You, you got to keep it all in. And because it, it's there, it's yeah. on the master, it's recorded into the track. And so honestly,
2: until. It, it's a ra-
1: not a radical difference. And it seems kind of wholly unnecessary.
2: And it was, especially at the time, honestly, if they had done it now, they probably couldn't have done more with it. Honestly, in the last couple of years, has been a lot more advances in audio technology to where if and actually did have his master tracks, if he ran the guitars through specific programs now, it would be able to compress out and liven up like echo rooms and like kind of take out reverb and stuff like that. Back then, the technology wasn't quite as good, which is why it did sound well, we a little bit then, more robotic. This is, this
1: is what five years ago, <laughs> two, yeah, th- no. two thousand fourteen, yeah, uh, when it so came out, not quite, yeah, eight but years but, ago then. but
2: honestly, I mean, God. eight eight years ago, technology versus now. I mean, next year, the stuff we're dealing with now is going to even be well, outdated. Go so back, it's,
1: go back to nineteen. 19- 1976 when they recorded this and they're probably using what 12 track machines maybe mm-hmm. maybe
2: well but that's just a crazy not to get off too much of a tangent but it's like that's the crazy thing about the way technology ran though it was so slow up to a point and then all of a sudden now it's just hit light speed yeah so yeah i mean there's not too much of a difference honestly honestly on the Resurrected version, I really like God of Thunder. It got a lot of hate, but I like that version. They separated the guitars out a little bit more. They made the drums a little heavier sounding, and the and they boosted the effects a little bit more. Like they brought the kids up some, you could hear them a little bit more clear. I thought God of Thunder uh, really, really benefited from this. The one thing they did that I despised, and as soon as I heard it, they I went, audibly i said they george lucas it. they made a bigger explosion sound at the end of detroit rock city into king of the nighttime world they well, put a different explosion in it and that literally made me feel like i was watching a george lucas way. special edition <laughs> they, i'm like they replaced an explosion
0: <laughs> oh it's hayden christensen god well, damn it the,
1: the there's a part in detroit rock city they have that i absolutely hate where they do the 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 uh, chorus on the tail end of the lead, of the guitar solo, <laughs> the guy to put yeah, yeah. To add that little. I f- hate that being there. But a- apparently, I hate that was originally that.
2: part of where it was supposed to well, be. It wasn't
1: on the. Finest, final finished one you thing, had and that's not where i want it and <laughs> god damn it why would you put it back there now they, oh yeah and one other it's odd very thing. distracting in the middle of that and that's the best it part really of the is. solo,
2: and the kiss nerds will yell at us if we didn't mention this the one other uh edition they changed or the one thing they changed on destroyer resurrected is according to legend Paul misspoke the line uh, right before our namesake of the podcast. He goes, uh, Going fast, moving fast, uh, going 95. The the lyric we hear is going 95.
1: He's going down 95. Yeah, he Mm. was
2: supposed to say down 95. So when resurrected, he actually has Paul saying down. He was able to grab like down from, like get up, get down. That's
1: the little, they even make a note of that in the liner notes. Yeah. Now now what do you guys feel about that? oh, I don't, That doesn't, doesn't. that's not an issue to me at all. I don't all. think it adds or takes that, away that, anything. That is that, I mean, other than to be a little, oh, interesting, but after that, it does nothing for that song.
2: It, it's it's very weird listening to it, though, because we all hear, uh, moving fast, going 95. Yeah, we hear yeah, that. Yeah. But then now it, when we it, hear it, work. it's like, going fast, down 95. It's like, ooh, it still that, hits that becomes, you a little weird. it
1: comes to a point of being so trivial that it's a trivial triviality. Right. <laughs> but, but hey, we're you kissing I was supposed I to talk about it, on I this show it, no
2: other show is going to be debating should we yeah. hear down we or hear, going yeah. other than no time to turn i
1: never it, it never i mean i think we might have i must have noticed that at some point but i just didn't
0: know what's going to happen it's like somebody I mean, would have like commented saying why did you bring this up and that's yeah. why i had
2: to
1: do it <laughs>
2: um oh and in beth they put an acoustic guitar back in the mix because uh, Peter even mentioned, he said, yeah, there was an acoustic recorded because he yep. did an interview with Eddie Trunk around the time Resurrected came out. Dick Wagner played the acoustic on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that, he, yeah, that an acoustic was recorded during that time, They but, but they cut it out of the mix for the final product, but they brought it back in for Resurrected.
1: Well, the other thing that I noticed is uh, on the news report at the front of Detroit Rock City, you mm-hmm. talk about these little trivialities. Yeah. He talks about the kid... Uh, got killed on Grand Avenue well there's mm-hmm. it's not Grand Avenue it's Grand River Avenue in Detroit.
2: Ah, see, this is the reason people tune in, trust me. it's is the reason I do the show. I
1: love <laughs> it. So, uh, now they've, they've got the finished product, they've got to have a title for it, or mm-hmm. is there anything else you're gonna?
2: Uh, not musically, but talking about they have the finished product, not quite, because it ties into something you discussed earlier. At some point during all of this, they have artwork drafted well, that's before getting, they even that's have what, the title. Well, that's what I'm getting into. Here. Okay, cool. Um,
1: they, they uh, the design guy is Dennis Wallach. Um, he contacts Frank Frazetta, the mm-hmm. famous um, fantasy artist who did uh, famously, I guess, the most recognizable Frazetta stuff would be the Molly Hatchet covers.
0: Okay. Uh, okay. I, yeah, Death I can see dealer, that now. <laughs> and
1: then the Flirting with Disaster cover yeah. are both Frazetta. and
0: it doesn't match the music at all.
1: <laughs> well, Frazetta... Well, I think that Death Dealer cover could have been a Destroyer cover. Oh, but, he's talking about Molly Hatchet, you know, how the Molly Hatchet oh, covers do not match, match the, the music, music at yeah, all. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little off.
2: Um, Marvin Martian singing Southern rock.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, I, I like the Molly Hatchet all right. Uh, so um, he contacts Frazetta, and Frazetta finally says, okay, but I get to keep the art. anything after the album cover you have to license and blah and they're like god no (laughs) it's the other way around dude (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is (laughs) kissed well you know they they, they've seen they haven't gotten to the merchandising quite yet but they they see the potential in that and they know Mm -hmm. we this is going to be used in a lot of probably different ways we're gonna have t-shirt and everything else yeah 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 Uh, And so they find a guy named Ken Kelly. Ken Kelly. Who, coincidentally, is Frazetta's nephew. No shit. Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. He had been doing uh, cover art for these sci-fi magazines like uh, Creepy and Eerie. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, you know, I'm, it,
0: look, I'm looking up his uh, album ar- uh, artwork credits, and he did uh, some work with Rainbow, and uh, he wound up doing Love Gun and uh, yeah. stuff by Manowar, and totally I, fits the vibe I think, of. I think
1: this is his first album cover, though. It is, and um, the way I understand the story is that um, he's on a very tight time constraint. They need this by a specific time. And so you get – and he refers to them as the brown and the blue covers. So the first attempt is with the – we'll call them the alive costumes. Yeah. Which, of course, they've changed their costumes at this point. And they're like, no, it's different costumes. And there is also allegedly an issue with the cover being perceived as overtly violent. Yeah. Which I don't, I don't get. Because uh, I've seen all three
2: variations. Four, if you include the resurrected version. And – and none of them seemed
1: extra. Well, it, he, when he flips to the to the from the brown cover to the blue cover and yeah. changes things, you notice he doesn't make a lot of change there. No, because apparently Dennis Wallach did not convey that information that the record label felt <laughs> it was too violent because he thought it was silly. I guess I don't know. Yeah, and 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 it. it you know, and I think that because it was muted from that kind of orange brown, which felt like fiery, I guess, I don't know. I'm just demon-ish. speculating to the more subtle blue violet. Mm-hmm. it softened the, I guess, what the kind of record perception. company felt was, was tone. What's important to note about this is if the record company has that perception of something that doesn't seem overtly violent, they're already thinking in a much different they're they're starting to focus the idea that, you know, we need to appeal to a certain audience here, and our audience seems to be young, and we don't want to do anything that's going to appear, appear, you know, to be, quote-unquote, for lack of a better term, R-rated, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know. And, and so everything has to be PG from this point out. And, you know, this ultimately will lead to a detrimental, you know, Measure for Kiss, but
2: yeah, wouldn't really see its fruition for what, another three, four years. But it's definitely the start. But
1: it's the start, and and that's just an interesting thing to note. The album title comes from uh, a guy named uh, I looked this up actually. A guy named Vinny. I don't know if I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna butcher his last name. DeGuerlando. And uh, evidently, there was a list of of. Uh, titles but he i think putting two and two together with the working album artwork Destroyer. Mm-hmm.
2: it's a great title especially for a band like that and what i just find interesting though is so if during and the reason this is why i was wanting to bring it because at first i thought you were just going to talk about you know them starting to hit the road again after recording well, we're but gonna get to that. yeah yeah that's what i thought you were initially getting to and this while I was wanting to stop but what i found interesting though is if they had their destroyer costumes during the time period of recording, or at least during the symphonic portions, and that's when they did a lot of the photo shoot with the bikes and everything else, why Ken had destroy uh, had alive and dressed to kill costume references, I, if, especially if he was on such a tight time frame, it seems like he yeah. would at least have those references to help with that time that's, frame. That's a
1: good point, and I can't even begin to think that they would be so absent-minded. It is to go. Oh yeah, we forgot to tell the guy that's doing the cover art that, that we have do, new costumes. You know, especially if they're doing going a, all a, through the
2: trouble of taking the photos because they yeah, knew they've
1: already got like you know photo ops done in the yeah. new costumes. Even though they're getting ready to go on the road again in their old costumes.
2: Yeah, that that clearly states that they're thinking because, about the because future. They're
1: still in the cycle. Again, this is where stuff is overlapping. They've recorded Destroyer. Now they're going to go on. They're going to go tour Europe. Well, they do kind of. Um, Kind of, um, I guess uh, I want to say Ontario and and. If Quebec. memory
2: serves me correctly, because I see both of y'all pulling out your phones. If memory serves me correctly, they were in the middle of their Dressed to Kill tour when Alive came out.
1: Well, yeah, well like, everything overlaps. So yeah, I'm just yeah. saying, but this cycle that they're still promoting is is Alive, and they. Um Did I lose my notes on this? Um they tour europe after they do some canada dates and one or two spotty u.s dates but they're still doing essentially cycling out the alive stuff yeah they're still wearing those that costuming uh but as we know when they go to europe they're they're starting to weave in these new destroyer songs so you know that famous footage now which was kind of a big deal when it popped up. Oh, and god, I Detroit remember Rock that. City and wearing the alive costumes
2: that and, and flaming youth they were, they were doing those two.
1: Um, some other things that are happening. Um, I guess they do uh, Ace gets married at this point mm-hmm. in, in May 1st, and of course, there's some footage of them getting up at Ace's I think wedding. it's
0: on one of the uh, Kissology yeah, uh, DVD so,
1: sets one of the little
2: Easter egg things. I think it's on disc two if you scroll up to like the logo it highlights and if you click it yeah it's, it's the whole crew no makeup and like tuxedos and stuff using like the house gear yeah. rocking out the rock and roll all night is totally awesome. It's interesting
1: to me they're playing their own stuff. They can't really necessarily jam out on other people's stuff. Well you know there's, I relate. There's a, there's a story that I read in one one of these books, and again, it may or may not be true, where they showed up at some kid's house and they're going to jam but they can't because all they're, they know is their own stuff. Yeah. So they just sort of <laughs> sit in the corner and watch these kids jam. Which is funny to me. You I've know? Heard,
2: I don't know where I've heard it, but I've heard that exact same story.
1: It, there's, but You don't know if that's a true story or not, but it's a good story. You know? it is. And, it and, seems... and I relate
2: because I don't jam either. Like, Because uh, our... Um, with uh, Cap and I, we have our own band called the Fillins, and our lead guitarist Mikey is great. at That he can just bust out just a little riff and start going. And our drummer, he's really great at picking that up, and he can start tapping along. Cap, he's pretty good at you know plucking along on bass stuff. I'm standing there like like I just I have no clue. I'll start just kind of do, it's like doing vocal stuff on top because I don't know what to
0: do on guitar. So I'm not a jammer either. Yeah. You'd be surprised how many uh, famous bands are like that.
1: Yeah. Well, they. Uh... They they like I say they continue to tour across I guess they do kind of upper eastern Canada mm-hmm. I guess they call that the Maritimes I'm not sure uh, they go to Europe and again we talked about this we introduced the new material the shows in Europe though are in a lot of smaller places they yeah not you know they're, they they it almost like they feel like they kind of step backwards I think a little bit because they Paul haven't talks broke about Europe. that. And, you know, they finally started hitting arenas in America, but in Europe they're still playing.
0: They're kind of starting over. Yeah,
1: they're kind of starting over, but... Um,
0: Who's the uh, opener on these uh, European dates? You
1: know, I, I don't have
2: that. I was going to say, the one thing I
0: didn't really dig into was tour stuff because I knew that
2: the actual recording process and everything wrapped around Destroyer was going to be so heavy. I honestly didn't dig too much into the tour. Same here. Mainly because also I would like to actually, but not even talking about the dates, the stage setup is even worth talking about so more than the actual before dates. Get to that, before we get to that, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: there's an important thing that happens, though, in, in May of 76. And that's when Bill coin brings in Carl Glickman and Howard Marks. Now, he already, for their business managers, these guys are going to come in. But they came in investing $100,000 in Kiss up front.
0: Right out
2: the gate. And wonder where that money went.
1: <laughs> well, who knows. Now, they already have a connection with Howard Marks through Howard Marks Advertising, who... Dennis Wallach, I think, is actually employed by, and you know, and it, it, yeah, you can say it's cynical, but I don't think it's cynical. It's just business. They see the opportunity as an inroad to get towards Casablanca, which is, in fact, what what happens. Um, Howard Marks' advertising takes over advertising for Casablanca, so it's a win-win for everybody there. Um, but they you know, being their business managers, they're the, they start wanting to renegotiate everything mm-hmm. and they insist a new contract. Now, this is something that's important to note right now, but it'll come be more of an issue later. Um, the contract they're they're asking now they want a half a million dollars in advance for each album, plus an additional half million for advertising. So a million dollars per album up front they want from Casablanca. Uh, where they'll take fifteen percent. Bill of coins commission is twenty five percent. Hmm. And Just, there's an interesting clause in this new contract that they work out.
0: Is this the uh, Neil Bogart one? What? Uh the one I'm thinking of uh was where uh, if uh Neil Bogart's not uh part of the deal, then KISS uh, anything that the members of KISS uh Get involved with uh, it doesn't matter in so many words.
1: Uh, maybe that might be in there, but the the thing that's interesting to me is there's a proviso in this contract that allows for four individual solo albums. I was going to bring oh. that up but I didn't want you
2: to immediately frown at me and be like, "No, no, that showed up later." I no, was, was going to bring that up Stacks. Okay, yes. I grant you you've now hit a thing with me. I thought it was just legend, but you've now got confirmation. That threw me for a loop when I saw that that they were already that was a provision that was in there in the Destroyer era. That means they were already thinking about marketing these
1: individual people as their own entities. Well, they also just Four solo albums. I mean, and, and what's interesting—the solo albums. We'll talk about the details on that once we get to it. Right, but but the the legend on that the entire time is that was the the moment
2: of clarity idea to keep the band together. During that time of doing like uh, Phantom of the Park Alive to double platinum, oh, that, that was like, like their like eureka the, moment of the, like, ooh, this is what's going to help keep everyone together is do solo albums. Give
1: their own for, yeah. Well, that that probably played into it, but no, they already had the position. They already had that position that they could do that, and that's crazy. That's part of their deal now. Um, meanwhile, you know they're going to go on the. They're finished. They finished the European dates. They come back. There's a. You know, a moment to breathe. I guess
2: first time in probably the first couple of years, there's finally a chance to breathe.
1: But how it's going to be? Uh, but while they're over in Europe, you know, uh, destroyer is released and comes out. Now they've got to come and support destroyer, and now they're going to do the new costuming, the new stage. So they've got this new staging that is um, they've contract contracted the Jules Fisher organization. And two guys named Mark Ravitz and Mark Kruger have designed this stage possibly with Sean Delaney's input or possibly streamlined by Sean Delaney you know, depending on the story. Now Sean, I've No, read,
2: I thought of every bit of it.
1: Well, no, it's just Oh yeah. <laughs> Sean Delaney claims at one point, you know, it was his idea, you know, to to have an individual kind of The staging is designed to have individual little uh, sections sec, or areas that that theme to each member. Right. And 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 um, at some point, though, you know, the, the re- their original road crew, uh, pretty much all of them, I think, except for maybe one guy, is fired. Yeah. Because they have to bring in this new crew to do this more elaborate staging. They have to tear it down and set it up and all this. Yeah. Which is the beginning of, you know, that sort of kind of. I'm sure those guys felt pretty burned by that. Um,
2: I know that uh, JR and a few others all got together to do a book.
1: Yeah, I have not gotten that book. I, I haven't either. That.
2: I'm not sure if it even fully got released, but I did kind of listen to the little press run they were doing. And, and yeah, the, it definitely feels like you know they were kind of hurt by the whole thing because they saw it all as a brotherhood. You know, yeah, They were they like, were, we, we would live and die for these guys. was a guys. very
1: close-knit little organization, mm-hmm. and they had built this thing. And, and they, now it's starting to finally see in the fruit of the labor. And, and now they're kicked to the like, curb, yeah, friend, more or like, less. It's like, well, we don't need you anymore. Yeah. And, and I know that they really took
2: that – Personally, and really saw that as a Gene and Paul move. They've said it without directly saying it but man it was it's like,
1: not a Gene and Paul I don't, I don't, I don't think, think so so
2: it all. was because for all for the amount that you know even the most diehard loyal Gene and Paul fans out there you know we can all step back and look and go yeah they've done some crappy things but at the end of the day they have proven themselves to stick by people that have done right by them for the simple fact that they go right back to um, Ken for that Sonic Boom album granted it didn't look good but they still came back to him you right. know they revisit people from that their past. That wasn't
1: King Kelly on Sonic Boom. That was uh, Michael Duray.
2: Uh, he had something to do with it because he was doing a lot of promotions for the artwork.
1: Well, Michael Duray did the cover. Hmm,
2: interesting. But uh, but I know that because our, around that same time he was doing other promotions. But they still do go back and refer back well, right, to people that did right with him. I
1: think this was a matter of just... It wasn't a matter of... Um, any ill will or, no, or, was, or feeling like they were incompetent they just probably felt like this is a professional organization yeah. we're going to bring in their crew to set up and tear down this professional blah 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 stage. yeah nothing personal now, just at business some point, deals shawn delaney claims they came in one time and this might have had something to do with the crew being fired they were griping a lot about this staging i don't know what the story is here you yeah. know shawn delaney has got different stories depending on it seemed like how his mood was on any given day interesting um But at any rate, we know the original road crew gets cycled out here.
2: And talking about, you know, complaining about the staging, I mean, let's kind of draw a little bit of a comparison. Even though that stage didn't last for very long, they kind of went from a whole stack of phony cabs, a candelabra, and a light-up logo, to all of a sudden, like you said, four, well, three kind of individual sections, a brand-new drum riser, at the end of the night, what, they had, like, these uh, lights at the top that would be lit up by sparks or something along yeah, those lines? I'm not exactly all sure. But, yeah, but had had the, either they way, had they had scaffolding the, up there with different new lights and
1: all this. They, the Supposedly, all of the front lighting was going to be supplied by just spotlight. Okay. And all the... Backlighting. They had the towers yep, yep. that looked like power towers. Yeah, that's the, what I'm referring. The trees. And then they had the um, they had lightning the lightning bolt. bolt things that kind of flashed. They were they were colored red, white, and blue to mm-hmm. coincide with the bicentennial because 1976 was yep. the bicentennial year. Um, and of course, you know, Peter had the uh, the cats on either side, mm-hmm. and and. Um,
0: it's like uh, Egyptian cat statues.
1: So, he, I mean, it was all themed, and and then they had the first variation of the staircases on either side of the drum riser.
2: So, I mean, they, it basically went from, you know, a, a super high-class version of what any three of us would, you know, carry along, you know, if we felt like being, you know, big money on stage, to all of a sudden, you know... Alice Cooper show on steroids. See, I can imagine how these rough and tumble, you know, getting it done guys are all of a sudden bitching. They're like, there's like four times the amount of crap to put up every night well, at now. At some
1: point, <laughs> it, there's a story, and again, I don't know that this is true, where they kind of came in and just started tearing down stuff off the stage. When we're not, we don't need this. We don't need this. This has got to go. This has got to go. This has got to go. Because supposedly there was a big tree that was supposed to. <sighs> whip around like it was in the wind or something. I don't remember. Okay. I, I've read about different things and who knows? I mean, yeah. uh, there's stuff that just didn't oh. work. They were going to use the uh yeah, that was be generator. part
2: generator. I'm sorry, I just remembered p- that tree was going to be part of Gene's area yeah. because he had that tower he would go up and the tree was going to be behind the yeah. tower and interact with him yeah, and
1: stuff like some, that. It was some corny idea. And I then, would
0: have loved to see that stage performance Gene talking to a tree.
1: They were going to have, <laughs> is it called a Van de The generator? The, the lightning... Spark things. Oh, spark, like you see in Frankenstein. Yeah, supposedly yes. totally, that was the same actual
2: set piece One. that they were going to mm-hmm. use because they was, only made a few of them, and
1: it proved to be just too unwieldy and didn't didn't survive. <laughs> and I don't even know if they used it. This tour opens in Norfolk, Virginia, at the Scope Arena, which is a cool building. I don't know if y'all have ever seen that building I actually. And uh, the opening band is Bob Seger. Yeah, and so it's interesting to me because, like, to this point. Bob Seger and Kiss have been perennial openers, kind of running. And now Kiss has kind of lunged ahead to be the headliner. Now, obviously, we know Bob Seeger's about to eclipse them. But it's, his own know, live album. it's an interesting era because I, I think about like Bob Seger, uh, all these bands that were like the perennial opening acts for everybody in this era are going to turn out to be big, big Big acts in the tail end of the 70s, early 80s, groups like Styx, ARIO, Speedwagon.
2: And Gene and Paul love taking credit for that. Well,
1: uh, whatever. It, it, they, were just, <laughs> they were part of that. They were part of that. It's like a Bob Seeger, of course. Uh, See, Ted Nugent's on Ted this Nugent. list. Yeah, well, that's. They, 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 uh,
0: See, Montrose with yeah. a baby Sammy Hagar.
1: Well, on July 13th, they play the first stadium show which is at a place called the Roosevelt Stadium which was just across the river from Manhattan in Jersey City and uh, so they're playing literally underneath the New York City skyline and they're you know it's a hometown gig for all intents and purposes what's notable about this show is that's where they met Chris Lent who would be the tour accountant and be very close to them for the next close to 10 years well more more than 10 years I think Yeah, yeah yeah And he's a very important person, and we're going to probably cite his book for a lot of stuff here too. Uh, I'm citing. Of course, he's a very good source. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, of course, I'm citing a lot of this from the uh, "A Forever" book by Jeff Suss and Kurt Gooch. I don't know if I say is it Suss or Suss. I don't know, but it's Not a sure. great book. It's worth finding. If Kurt you can. also
2: does a lot of good work too.
1: Yeah, um, the stadium shows are interesting on this because. Uh, uh, like we said July 13th the Roosevelt Stadium the um, Chris Lent that's where he gets introduced to the band for the first time uh, there's some pictures of the kiss with Linda Lovelace that have popped up in recent years that was that night um,
0: for our younger listeners she was the uh, 70s equivalent to a Jenna Jameson or am I dating myself with that name now ah, Jenna Jameson still might be a little dating yourself uh, might be
1: yeah, well you know what she was no Jenna James. <laughs> Fair enough. She wasn't even a... I don't know. My <laughs> brother started little, going down. I, this is a different I, you know, podcast. I'm sure, yeah. she was a, I'm sure she was a lovely lady. <laughs> I'm sure she was very I know, sweet. I know she had a particular talent. <laughs>
0: she, she had a particular Did set, set of skills? I mean, I
1: particular talent? I mean, I don't, I, just, I don't... There's things I don't understand. <laughs> Some things in this world you just can't explain.
0: But yeah, Bob Seger's on a... Good chunk of these dates. Of oh yeah, 1976. Bob Seger opens
1: most of these shows, and unless it's a place, unless there's something he can do on his own, uh, he uh, he's on uh, the whole tour, and that's the he's first great. time I think they've really booked the whole tour with a single opening act. Detroit Boy too. Uh, um, the road crew at the time, somebody I read noted, it, you know, Bob Seger was a very. Uh, uh, a very sturdy, uh, you know, he was a great live act. And it were points where they were just like, really going to have to up their game tonight because Seager just because the house ripped. away. Yeah. Wow. Check
0: out this uh, Atlanta date, uh, August 29th.
1: Yeah. I, I, well, before we get there, before we get to the 29th, August 20th, they're in the famous Anaheim show.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which and, we got YouTube footage which of. Which is really
1: the pinnacle of that tour. And probably... Arguably, maybe one of the pinnacle successes of the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, granted, that show is loaded. They've got Bob Seger, Ted Nugent, and Montrose.
2: God, what a bill!
1: What a bill! I mean, and they got Flo and Eddie as the guest MCs. They're the guys that the a lot of people I don't think even realize that's who it is that introduced Kiss. There's, the video exists of that show, and they're dressed up in wild garb. Flo and Eddie are. Howard Kalen and uh, Mark Volman, who were in the Turtles uh, and they by by the early 70s they had lost the legal right to use their own name it's a long story but <laughs> they sang back up on so much stuff that were, will they,
0: surprise you were these the singers that were on the Frank Zappa lineups and all yeah, that too yeah
1: they sang they were with the mothers for a good couple of years and then they sang. They were the high pitched kind of vocals on all the T Rex stuff, you know. Okay, okay. Their big you hit know?
0: was "Happy Together," but their big hit was
1: "Happy Together." Got it, got it. Um, they appear on tons of stuff, and uh, they're clever, funny, witty guys. So it seems like, and their solo albums are great. Bob Ezrin produced one of their albums. Solo albums, not solo album, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. They, he produced one of the Flo and Eddie albums. They're all really good. Um, So, uh, but you go, let's go on to the, I mean, I I don't know. Is there anything noteworthy of Anaheim other than the the event happened? No. It's caught on video. No.
2: Um, I think well. How much more uh, tour info do you have? I don't want to step on toes of stuff that you may have.
1: I'm just I'm going. I'm I'm kind of highlighting the stadium dates because I think it's interesting that they're already hitting some stadiums and some of them are successes and some of them are not. But the ones that are, they're loaded shows. Mm -hmm. So I mean, Kiss is headlining, but I could see how this might be perceived as a a bigger event than just kiss. Yeah. You know, but it, it benefits kiss to be the band. They're the, you know, they're the headliner. So mm-hmm. now because they were doing the stadium stuff,
2: did they eventually have to cut back down to theaters and they're
1: still playing arenas. Now they're, they're full on in arenas. I don't think any of the dates they've done other than that is.
2: So then I wonder, and I could kind of have my facts a little bit wrong, but I feel like it, like, that main stage that we discussed only lasted partly through the tour because there's not a whole lot of video of that like we we have a we in retrospect have a decent amount of footage from kiss to you know dress to kill era mm-hmm. and then a ton of footage from alive
1: there's not a lot of destroyer stuff yeah
2: and then there's an okay amount from rock and roll over and tons from love gun and moving forward but there's very very little in comparison of for Destroyer. Yeah. And I want, and it always kind of led me to kind of feel like they kind of either abandoned the stage show, the tour wasn't very long, something kind of happened during that run that caused there to not even be a lot of even like fan-recorded stuff yeah, out well, there. well, there's,
1: you know, let's the, see, there's, a, the, the stuff that's come up in, in the last 10 or 12, 15 years, whatever, is the uh, Detroit show mm-hmm. and a Houston show mm-hmm. and then Anaheim. Yeah. But you would think that somebody would have had the wherewithal to think we need to get this caught on, but you know, they, there's no professional, really good, professionally recorded Kiss show except for maybe the Largo '77. Well, all, the rest, all the rest,
2: really done, well. it's done
1: pretty well. But most of these are from live feeds in, mm-hmm. in 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 the arena. These are the reason why these exist is because of. Uh, like with the Houston, you see a lot of bootlegs from the Houston Summit and a lot from Kobo because they had in-house video feeds, so that tape exists. Winterland had its own in, 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 in-house video. Mm-hmm. So that's but then why also, you see a lot more of that. And then later on, the Capitol Center in Largo, Maryland had in-house video, and that's where the Largo video comes from.
2: Yeah, but, and I guess just kind of putting everything in comparison because, you know, persp- uh, perspective is everything – I mean, think about the people that were around kids, like Sean Delaney, Bill LaCoin, people that were in television were in and knew television the power in- of visual. And if they sunk so much Whoa. money into this huge stage show, it would almost seem like even if Gene and Paul are too, you know, inundated in- in with, you know, worrying about new records and everything else, even if they're not thinking about, let's re- film Management this. Management
1: should be thinking about something like it. Well, we'll yeah. get to that in a minute, We'll because we're, we're going to close with something, but... Uh, let's finish out these dates. The, and, again, I'm just highlighting stadium dates. You said August 29th, Atlanta at the Fulton County Stadium.
0: Yeah, get a load of this lineup. 38 Special, Blue Oyster Cult, Edgar Winter, Johnny Winter, Bob Seger, Kiss. Yeah. Wow. And uh, it, Blue Oyster Cult's important with this because uh, it gets brought up with uh, every uh, book, every memoir where uh, Blue Oyster mm-hmm. Cult was their uh, – who they were uh, opening for. Prior to all this, this success, and now Blue Oyster Cult is opening up for them. A year yeah.
1: to the day. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Which, but, again, this I don't think is so much, you know, this feels more, again, it's it's an event. It's a bigger event than just Kiss. Yeah. You could say that, which would help, uh, you know, ensure a draw. I mean, they, they at that show, I think they had... Uh,
2: this show probably had its own name yeah Yeah. it's like a mini festival almost i don't
1: know you know i don't don't find a lot of information on that there seems to be a lot more information about the anaheim show than there is this atlanta show but um
0: i just thought that was interesting that's like the uh drive at five but a couple of these (laughs) stadium shows
1: that they have scheduled get canceled and i don't you know for whatever reason maybe they just they can't you know they're not that strong of a draw yet right? because their next one is in toronto at a place called varsity stadium and them again i'm signing the alive forever book on this and they only drew thirteen thousand five hundred people in in this stadium in which, comparison to which is a good house for an arena show that'd be a sellout probably okay and in in, in in an arena but for a, a stadium that holds 30 40 000 people i was about to ask that's that's you no, know, nah. it's kind of kind of meager. Um, Seeger was scheduled for that show, but canceled. But I don't know if that had any effect on the I don't know when he canceled or when it was announced that he wasn't part of that. Right.
0: So, That's
2: interesting, though. Um, um, and also, we don't know how much of a pull he had for that tour either.
1: Right. But but I'm sure he was, you know, because this is right at the beginning of his Night Moves era, I would say. OK. Yeah. Mm. Uh, let me look that up. they finally the tour winds up on September 12th in Springfield Massachusetts um, somebody else might need to look this up to your ends and this is, I think is the is a good hard cap in for the destroyer era is then they go and they film the Paul Pauline Halloween special and, and I don't I don't have a I don't have a date for that
0: see the Paul inn TV show where they uh, they're all interviewed in full makeup and full costume and everything, but the song that's performed is Beth. Right? Well, they, they do three songs. There's three
1: songs, and they're all Destroyer songs. So this is, you know, this is only a week or so before Rock and Roll Over is released. So coming off of September, they're going to go into the studio and, and start Rock and Roll Over, but they're still cycling out the Destroyer thing with this appearance on the Halloween. This is an important thing because I think this is on primetime so. ABC.
0: Mm-hmm. October and, 29th yeah, 1976 yeah that's when it
1: aired Yeah, get. A, I, I don't when know it when yet. it was recorded I, I meant to get the get that and I don't have it in my notes here but um, you know and of course famously they're on the show with uh, Margaret Hamilton the original Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz who yep. we in all costume. grew up with and she's in costume uh, Witchy Poo who had been the character off of H.R. Uh, Puffin stuff which was the flagship Sid and Marty Croft thing which in the 70s there was a, a glut of Sidney, Sid and Marty Croft shows these kind of weird children shows the most popular of which was Land of the Lost um, so you know again we're on a show that's kind of a kid friendly show we got Tim Conway and
0: Betty White on this lineup too
1: Yeah, and so uh, and and Ross Kelly who was on uh, Happy Days as a character called Pinky Cus- Tuscadero and they introduced a the character as Pinky's little sister Leather Tuscadero who was played by Susie Quattro Susie Quattro um but i think it's interesting to note that this halloween special again it's very kid friendly but it's the first i think their first primetime major media exposure and i think you know it's 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 kind of promoting it ABC in concert not be no, that's that's like late night. That came on at like probably like twelve o'clock, 1 a.m. Something okay, like okay. This is prime time. This is, this is eight o'clock. You know.
0: Is this when it's the just, perception of Kiss as like the uh, the demonic Knights well, and Satan ser- service kind of gets skewed?
1: And, well, they're trying to, but I think you know it fits a Halloween thing. And, yeah. and and here's the interesting interesting thing to note is that Destroyer has not done well. And. Not to what they had hoped. Uh, Fans have not responded to this album. It's maybe won over some new fans, but by and large, a lot of Kiss fans are not pleased with this because of what we were talking about earlier. It's so dense, and it's so kind of cold. It doesn't have that kind of raw, loose feeling that Kiss were known for, that raw excitement. It has
0: the ballad.
1: It's, yeah, you know, Kiss Alive is... You know that's what you think kiss is, and now they've come in with this heavy concept kind of where you're not even sure what the concept even is you know right. it's just what is this and so it's it seems very, very left field for them at this point, and it has not done well and it's only at this point when they start promoting Beth that things are gonna start turning around for that record and of course they're going to come in right underneath it within weeks now of this airing this halloween special with the follow-up rock and roll over which we'll talk about on the next uh episode
0: for sure and uh you know i think uh, with beth uh that gains a new audience and of course like contributes to more sales but the the fans stick around for the uh the tours and they're still going to shows yeah but the fan reception on destroyer was from what i heard just was very much
2: divided.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a divided thing. And it, it informs how they go into making the follow-up. But we'll discuss that on the next episode. And uh, we got anything else to add here? I was, I
2: was looking up to see if I could film, find filming dates for the Halloween special. But no, I couldn't find yeah. any on there.
1: I, I, I saw it somewhere, and I meant to write it down. I totally yeah, I'm God. only
2: seeing the uh, the airing we, date that, uh, that Cap brought out, it, which it, was uh, October, October 29th. 29th. Yeah,
1: and that kind of capped off the whole destroyer run, and uh, things are going to again things start kind of overlapping here because you know, hence why I like to call this "no time to turn" and but how where, how apt it is. Well, where does uh, this record
2: kind of sit for you guys in the uh, the pantheon? Because we kind of usually we kind of wrap up talking about
1: that. Well, uh, you know, I recognize that now. History has shown it to be the definitive kiss album. Mm-hmm. It is the one, and most people know this probably better than any other. Um, it's not my personal favorite. I like it. I think it's a great record. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think everything that Bob Ezrin's putting into this is important to note for when we come and revisit his later work with the band. Um, you know, he was not trying to make. Very consciously and very obviously, not trying to make a record that sounded like a live, like they did live. He was trying to capture a a feeling and a vibe, and and, you know, create drama and whatever else around it. You know, it was the same kind of approach that he took with um, Billion Dollar Babies with Alice Cooper. You know, it's everything. Everything. (laughs) Yeah, he's making. He's very consciously not. You know, he's not trying to capture the vibe of a band live in the studio. He's trying to make an album that is very self-consciously not a live thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it makes probably playing some of this stuff live difficult, which, you know, why they never really touched much of it.
0: Just Do You Love Me, Shout It Out Loud, uh, Detroit. Uh, uh, let's see. The King oh, no, Time, no, World. They play, flame, they play
1: a yeah, lot of yeah, it. but... Yeah, I still see what you mean, though. but it does—it's not—it doesn't hit quite mm-hmm. the same way, you know. He's got it skewered in a particular way, but-
2: and, and honestly, for me, where I, where I kind of stand with the record is I kind of agree. It's, it winds up being the definitive Kiss record? You see that? You see that in the Dynasty album cover the most on T-shirts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's probably the most recognizable image. But honestly, when you really kind of have to look at just purely songs, it. It does crack my top five, but it's not my immediate go-to for when I want to go listen to a KISS record. And it's not because any of the songs are overplayed. I can put on Detroit Rock City right now and enjoy it. It's not like a rock and roll all night situation. So, I... Ah. I find myself enjoying the songs on there that don't get as much love, like King of the Nighttime World. I'll listen to that one way faster. I'll listen to Flaming Youth really fast. So I find myself digging into those and then occasionally even like the shouted out louds. But I I wouldn't say this is like my immediate go to. And it's almost kind of not necessarily unfortunate, but it it kind of sucks that that wound up being the definitive record and not like a rock and roll over or a love gun something that in my opinion kind of showcases the band a little bit more
0: yeah it's not one of my favorites either but i have a new appreciation for it dissecting it and kind of picking apart you know the production lines up because i'm a big fan of you know producers in the 70s and just kind of you know picking those uh those information notes and things like that too because of that i've got a uh, a new uh love for it but again it's not one of my top three by any means
1: i just wonder you know and we'll wrap this up but i i wonder had they stayed with bob ezren to continue you know a working relationship much as he had forged with alice cooper what if anything would have been different and how that would have been
0: Mm. See, I can go into a whole other podcast with well, a theory we, behind that, and, it. I, and I
1: have a theory. We it moving into that more on the next one, but I do actually have a
2: theory on that a little bit. Moving into the next one, we'll talk about it on next episode. But I, I feel that actually the band took a lot of what they learned from Ezrin, condensed out what they didn't like. Oh yeah, uh, and applied it to the next record. But I'm just
1: saying, if they continue to work with him, making these, you know, kind of Sonic movie kind of records, how different the the whole thing would have felt and been right. moving forward. But, you know, we can only speculate.
2: Absolutely.
1: And as we see, the things are just as fast as they've had to work, as hard as they've had to work for the previous three years now... Two, two and a half years, two years, God, really. I mean, and it, fast. It's so fast. Now, when success is starting to hit, they're going to have to work that much faster and harder. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're going to see that things are going to kind of start really, as fast as everything's been going, we're seeing this stuff start to overlap as we go into the rock and roll over stuff. But that'll be the next episode, which we hope you will join us. And I uh, hope you've enjoyed our talk as we've looked at Destroyer, and we'll uh, hopefully see you all again. When we rock and roll over.
0: <laughs> I love it. <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 Could
1: not. Could so not for, have said it. So for Cap Nunn and Alex Stuff, I'm Russ Ward, and we'll see you next time on New no Time Good night.
0: Thank you for listening.
1: Please insert
0: another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash something network